We're going to jump back into our message series, We Believe, which started about three weeks ago. And last week was uh, Father's Day, and God was really kind to me, especially when, when I'm trying to look for illustrations and stuff to talk about examples in my messages. Sometimes they come from the natural world. Sometimes they're stories in my own life. Sometimes they're things that happen as I'm talking to you. But last week, on Sunday night of last week, God was really kind to me when he gave me this story to share with you all today. Uh, the memory of what I'm about to share with you and what we're talking about today was sort of triggered when an old friend of mine, who's currently a firefighter in New York City, he texted me to wish me a happy Father's Day. Now, I met him over 20 years ago, and I, we actually met in Florida, somewhat ironically, and we rather quickly developed a pretty rich friendship through some very complicated life circumstances. So in Florida, we, we sort of developed this common bond. We were essentially two different people from a somewhat similar walk of life, but we were sort of bound together, if you will, by our circumstances, and that is that we were involuntarily removed from New York by our parents to move to Florida. That's a common story. Um, New York is called Florida the sixth borough because it's literally packed with people from the Northeast. And so we were sort of two young men who were in a state that we didn't really care for. And we were sort of a perfect fit for each other because of this, this problem we were dealing with. And so even though he and I had very different sort of backdrops, we grew to be the very best of friends. And our relationship, it began sort of on a, a less than ideal note, a somewhat humorous note. In fact, I first noticed him. This is the first thing I identified about him. It's because he was wearing the same pair of sneakers I was. Now, I want to rewind the clock here for a little bit. This was in the 90s, and this was a big deal in the 90s. Like, basically, when you bought a pair of New Balance, you thought, like, New Balance made that shoe for you and you alone, and nobody else in the world was allowed to wear it. And so I went up to this guy. I found out his name was Steve, and I said, hey, man, you're wearing my sneakers, as if, like, I owned the company and they were my sneakers. And we had a little bit of a, of a tussle at that point, like a little verbal disagreement. And it was the kind of thing that you pointed out. Now, this seems utterly ridiculous to me now. I promise if you're wearing the same sneakers that I am wearing, I won't say anything, but I will still be angry in internally. That's the way this, this will work now. But in those days, I was very, very far from God, and that was a real serious issue, a stupid one, but nonetheless a serious one. And so eventually, he and I got past the shoe incident. We have joked about it over the years, and we became super good friends, like brothers. And it got to the point where we were literally uh, treated like sons in each other's households. Like, if you were to talk to my parents today or his, they viewed us like a third, a third brother, essentially, is how it was. And so, naturally, we were always eating at each other's houses. And this is interesting, because it led to the second major crisis of our friendship, one we still joke about today. And this is a big deal for two young Italian men, especially when you involve their mothers. It was something far more serious than sneakers. What are you asking it is? Well, it was meatballs, okay? Meatballs. Now, promise, uh, promise here, there's a point, so hold it with me. We literally have these super serious conversations slash arguments about the differing philosophies on how you make a meatball. And I am a fairly opinionated human being, as was he, so we would have these, these significant arguments, like our family names were on the line. My mom, and sort of my pedigree, comes from a very particular discipline when it comes to a meatball. A meatball should be the size of about a silver dollar, and you fry it first. You put it in a frying pan, brown it up real nice, then you put it in your sauce and cook it, okay? Where his mom came from a different school, I thought, they had, I'm not kidding, their meatballs were like the size of grapefruits, okay? This is a common way of making a meatball. It's wrong, I just want to tell you, but nonetheless, it's, it's a way of making a meatball. It's a big ball of meat, and you don't cook it ahead of time. You cook it in a pot of sauce, and you know, both come to the same conclusion of cooked meatball, but they create two different flavors, very different flavors. And so I'm not kidding. We would argue about this all the time while we were eating meatballs at each other's houses. It was sort of funny. We were, you know, complaining about the free food we were getting. But nonetheless, it was like we were defending our family's honor. And as silly as this stuff sounds today, and it is sort of funny, it's sort of like a good family story. 
it was the result of something that I think is truly healthy. And that is that he and I had literally become a part of each other's families. And we grew so close that we shared in big stuff, little stuff, challenges, jokes, humor, all that stuff that sort of good friends engage in. Life sort of got weaved together for a very long season of life. And consequently, it was very sad when we parted ways and both left Florida. It's like we met here and then I, uh, well, he moved back up north and I moved to New Orleans. And when that happened, it was sort of like seeing your brother move away for school. It was a super rich relationship. And it was just, I thought, awesome that a week ago today, you know, I got this text from him. It was a reminder of the very idea that I want to talk about today. When, when someone, at least in my circumstance here, someone who wasn't born my brother becomes like my brother. And I'm sure many of you have similar stories. You all have probably deep and meaningful friends. You know folks who have sort of family friendships or outside of the family friendships where stuff is incredibly tight. And all of that signifies something about the way we are designed as people, the way we're created as people. That we as people, we, we like to relate to each other. Now sometimes we can relate to each other in unhealthy ways, but the premise of what we're talking about today is that there's a sort of design that God has for his people and the way we relate and care for each other. And when you look at relationships, the most meaningful ones we have in life, okay, friends, family, spouses, children, these are almost always simultaneously some of the most difficult relationships we have in life. That doesn't mean they're bad or they're unhealthy. It just means that your closest people oftentimes are some of the folks that you, you endure the greatest challenges with. And so it's sort of like the sweet times are more sweet, but the conflict zones can be more difficult because of the level of intimacy and relationship you have with each other. This is sort of like a, a best friend idea, the way we care for our spouses, our children. Even um, our walk with Jesus can be this way sometimes. You know, Jesus desires great intimacy with us. And so sometimes that can be very difficult, very challenging. And this idea, this relational idea, really knows no boundaries in our life. And it's certainly connected to the idea of what the church family is. This, this concept of we and me that we've been talking about over these past weeks. And so I want to story up a little bit here. Two weeks ago, we launched a new series entitled We Believe. And we began our study by looking at one of Jesus' prayers in John 17. And that will still serve for a backdrop of what we're going to talk about today. Over these past weeks, in case you have not been here, we've been talking about the importance of the me side of Christianity and the we side of Christianity. Simply meaning that in the Christian faith, Jesus redeems individuals. Meaning we look to him at some point, we recognize who he is, and there is a, there's a new relationship we have with our Father in heaven because of Jesus. We come to this point of, of trusting who he says he is and believing that he's taken away the sins of the world on the cross. And we are forgiven because of that. That happens between us and God. But I've made the point each week that it is very, 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 very likely, I would just about say guaranteed, that even though our individual faith before Jesus is individual, in the sense that it is us following him, nobody follows Jesus alone in this world. Simply meaning there were likely people who loved God that spoke into your life about that. Friends, family members, pastors. And so there is a significant we element to the Christian faith too. In fact, theologically speaking, the doctrine of the church, there is one of these in the Bible, we call this ecclesiology, the gathered ones. What it simply means is when Jesus redeems us, he redeems us out of, of sin, obviously, but into the church family. Now, our church families gather all around the globe in different ways, local families like this one, Restoration Church. This is what we call the lowercase c church. But there's a capital C church, meaning the past, present, and future believers in Jesus Christ. And so what's funny about what we've been talking about is a lot of people today get to this place where they want to follow Jesus individually, but they don't want to do it with God's people. And what I'm telling you is functionally, that's actually not true. You are in the family of God, whether you like it or not. 
whether you obey that and live by that is an entirely different standard. That's the we part of Christianity. Our individual faith in Christ is meant to be lived out and applied with other Christians in everyday life. Everyday life, from the most mundane to the most significant challenges we deal with. And although people commonly separate the me-we today, we have referred to this as privatized Christianity over the past weeks, God never meant them to be separated in Scripture. They are like bone and marrow. They need each other. Furthermore, and here's the problem, we're talking about this series called We Believe, how the truths of God shape life. And what I want to say here, I've said this at the beginning and the end of every message, and I will pretty much until this series is wrapped up, is following God alone is actually an impediment to your ability to grow in Jesus because you, you just cannot do it well. We grow before Jesus with each other. It is our lives sort of rubbing against each other, sharing common struggles, common victories, whatever is going on, God uses the family of God to help us become more like him. And so the more that I thought about what I was going to talk about today, the more I thought it beneficial to spend another week talking through this idea, particularly from the angle of what some of the difficulties are that we might face here when trying to find a solid balance between the, you know, the me and the we. Like, I'm not encouraging us to, to create a Christian compound where we live like in a back room here. I'm saying there, there can be some difficulties with this. And the difficulties typically revolve around two words when it comes to relationships anyways, and that's what we're talking about. Idealism and realism. When we talk about our role in the church family, when we talk about sort of the we portion of Christianity, we believe these truths and follow God together under them, there is a real potential issue that we can, uh, we can sort, of, excuse me, sort of fall prey to. And this is especially true in our relationships because our relationships are one of the easiest places in life where the expectations we have of people or the expectations people have of us, if they are unrealistic, they immediately become idealism. In other words, we start setting standards for each other that are actually not able to be accomplished. And when that happens, what happens is we invite a toxin into our relationships that actually destroys them. Ideals matter in the world. We sort of need an ideal to strive towards, but there is always the reality of what it takes to get to an ideal. And that's really what I want to talk about today. In other words, simply put, if you need a thesis this morning, there's a big difference between the real and the ideal when it comes to how we love others as Jesus has commanded us to love others. That's what he says, right? That's what we've talked about in these past two weeks, that Jesus says the very same love, he, his Father in heaven, and his Holy Spirit share together, what we call the Holy Trinity, the three are one and the one are three. That's what he just said. I'm in you and you're in me and we're together. He's blurred this line that we are all one dynamic large family, those of us in Jesus, with God the Father, Jesus the Son, the Holy Spirit, and each other. Man, there's some beautiful stuff in that statement but an immeasurable set of ideals that can ruin that statement if we're not careful. And so today's teaching is still based on the prayer command Jesus gave us in John 13 and 17. It's sort of a way for us to talk about how the most meaningful relationships in life oftentimes can be the most rewarding and the most challenging. And what we're talking about is sort of another way to love each other. Like I wanna give us some practical ideas at the back end of this. This teaching is very simple. The command to love one another is very simple. It's very short. You've probably noticed that. But it's also deeply profound. And so what happens here is it's, we might sort of underestimate the reality of what this actually communicates to us. It's very easy for us to memorize an idea like this, a truth like this, but then be deeply challenged in our ability to, to live it out. It's a difficult thing to do at times. And I think we would do ourselves well to sort of affirm that reality with each other. That our desire, the ideal, is that we love others as love God's, excuse me, as God loves us. Brother and sister in Jesus and those that are far from him. 
But the truth is that's not always easy. And if we sort of affirm that reality, then we are at the same starting point in how we learn to live and press into that reality. And so today I want to spend some more time trying to give us a practical understanding of what this looks like in our lives. And my hope is that we will all live this. Remember, this is a series on theology. I'm not making any, you know, there's no, no secrecy about that. But theologies are not just dusty ideas we talk about when it comes to God. They are truths that are meant to shape and reshape our lives. So everything we talk about has a significant application point. There is something God has told us about himself that he wants us to know about ourselves. And so when we talk about God being a God of love and grace, lots of teaching on that over the past two weeks, we also need to be a, 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 a people who are filled with love and grace. And this leads me to the only we believe truth that I want to share with you today. We believe that God's love created a new kind of family for us to be a part of called the church. So what we're reading about in John, what we've read about in both these passages, is sort of the, the rumblings of Jesus inaugurating the church. The church isn't around at this point in history, but it's about to be. He starts binding men and women together under these teachings so that they can follow him in a new way. And what's interesting about this is the scripture, pretty much no matter where you go, the scripture tells us that following Jesus is synonymous with the idea of living in a healthy family. So this is a frame of reference that is going to likely be really good for some of us and maybe not so good. Whenever we use words like fatherhood in this room or family, we never assume that every one of us has really you know, dedicated and clear, robust, good, healthy ideas of what this is. Like for some of us, when we say father, that's a word that doesn't resonate with us because maybe we didn't have one. I mean, biologically we had one, but we've just never met him or maybe that it has never been to the place where we've hoped it to be. When we say family, the idea is the same thing. Some of us have, I'm sure, very healthy family backdrops, others not so much. And so it's important for us when we talk about these words to understand them from the biblical perspective. Meaning God says our lives together should be like a family. So we have to lay down for a few moments maybe some of the assumptions we bring to this word, or this idea, so that we can maybe sense peace and redemption in it. Because whether you've had a great family or a not so great family, the beauty of what Jesus is teaching us here and what we're going to look at here in a moment from Paul is that there, there can be redemption, there can be hope in this. If we've had a terrible family backdrop, there can be a new hope in family because of the brotherhood and the sisterhood of Jesus Christ. And so Paul literally tells us in Ephesians 1, I'll read it in a moment, I want to give you some, some supporting ideas here. He calls the family of God, the church, a household. Here's what he says, it's behind me. He says, consequently, he's talking about us being in Jesus. And then he goes on and says, consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. It's bolded for a reason built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And so the gist of this verse is communicating that at the epicenter of the family of God, at the epicenter of the Christian faith, is this guy named Jesus. He is a cornerstone. Those of you with an architectural backdrop know the cornerstone is how you make sure a building is true as you continue to build on it. He is the foundation. No matter what way you're looking at the Christian life, the foundation of it is always Jesus Christ. And when we're firing on all cylinders and Jesus is working in our lives, the result of this, Paul tells us, is that the whole building, and he's not referring to bricks and stone here. This is a spiritual metaphor. He's talking about the body of Christ in local bodies and in the body large, like past, present, and future. It is joined together and it rises up to become the new temple of God. Meaning we go out into the world and we literally 
are bringing the kingdom of God into the world because of the way God has worked in us. And in this verse, at the center of this verse, our, our portion, our responsibility, is this idea of household. God calls us, through the words of Paul, a household. Partners, members of his household. And that word really provides a deep clarity to this loving unity Jesus is praying for us to have in John 13 and 17. No longer is love one another ambiguous, not that it was at that point, but as the scripture is written out, we get further sort of defining truths that help us to understand these teachings. So Jesus is saying we're to love each other like a household, like, like a family, the subject of my last two teachings. Simply put, Jesus tells us the best way to understand how he desires us to be unified as God's people, the answer to that prayer, you might say, is to compare us, the church, to a healthy family. And this is, anytime we read about stuff like this in the Bible, we like to call these relational promises. So when God says, hey, a byproduct of my gospel is you can have peace, that's a promise. But promises have to be sort of received and understood in order for us to really experience the reality of that. Thus, if you've been a Christian for some time, it is very likely that you know with your head that the gospel of Jesus Christ promises us peace, but there are always times or have been times in our lives when we are without it. Promises, God's promises anyways, they're never revoked from us, but sometimes the way we receive them and understand them can be very fragile because of the circumstances of life. And so here when we talk about family, this idea is something God has already declared. The, the people of God, is, it's already the family of God. We are already bound in Jesus. But what I want to communicate this morning is that there's a, a, a necessity to understand this in order to deeply experience it and apply it. And so like so many of God's other promises in the Bible, even though we're afforded the opportunity to be a vitally connected member of his church, the we, it's a promise we have to really own with our head, our hearts, and our hands. And this is because, I've said this too in the past, in our modern Christian culture, some people have become very comfortable with attempting to follow God without the family of God. It's a new brand of Christianity. It's not a valid brand, but nonetheless, it, it is a brand. I really believe, especially when comparing this action to verses like the ones we're talking about today, Jesus' prayers and Paul's description of us, not only does this displease God, I'm pretty convinced it hurts God. In other words, it, it grieves him to see this idea of privatized faith on the earth. And teachings like this make it explicitly clear that God's ultimate desire for us in the church is that we really desire to be around each other. And when I say really desire, there's no idealism in that. Think of your friends, your family. There are days when stuff is up and days when stuff is down. But nonetheless, at the end of the day, when there is genuine love between people, you persevere and you press on. The idea that we're talking about here is God wants us to have a, a heartfelt desire to make it a priority to worship with each other, to grow together with each other under the teaching of his scripture. In other words, there is sort of, a, we're climbing the same hill, aspiring to grab the same flag, and that is the truth of Jesus Christ. What God desires from his people is that we love and support each other as we seek to live out these truths in our lives. That's what Paul means here when he says the church is a household. Think about your families. That's what families do. It's a household built on the foundation of the prophets and the apostles. And this is an important statement here because it also gives us another qualifier. What does it mean for the, for the house of God to be built on the prophets and the apostles? Well, the prophets and the apostles, if you look at the, the Old Testament and the New Testament, they pretty much have one particular calling in life. They are committed to teaching God's truth to God's people. It is their highest calling in life. And so 
In every way, Paul is like trying to bolster this reality. Jesus is the cornerstone. It is the foundation. In this case, we're finding out that the apostles and the prophets, it's built on their ministry too. In other words, this is an idea from, from Genesis to Revelation that is congruent. And God wants us to understand the significance of it. And so this family reality is a promise, a significant one. One that has already been fulfilled because God has birthed the church. You know, we're looking at teachings like this 2,000 years down the road. The church is here. And it's not going anywhere until Jesus calls us home. It'll be on earth, challenged in every way, I'm sure, but thriving in every way too. That's the nature of the church. It has always been this way and will always be this way. And one of the reasons why the church does what it does, it's fueled by the grace of God, but there's a beautiful reality of us doing this together. That's part of the equation. That's the way God designed it. And so there's a promise made to each one of us that in the family of God, it has to be a me-we. God doesn't condone disconnecting our personal faith, the me, from the familial identity of the body of Christ, the we. In fact, whenever you read about the church, you will find it described in this way. One unified body made up of individual believers following Jesus. Let me give you some examples of this. Two really substantial metaphors in the Bible that are used to describe the church family. The first is the relationship between husband and wife. Literal description of the church. Now, the Bible tells us through marriage, like two individual people, a husband and a wife, although they are still individual people, in Jesus, they now share a corporate unity as they become one flesh. They are absolutely individual. They have dignity before God as individuals. They matter before God as individuals. But when those two flesh become one, the dynamic changes. The two flesh now live for each other. That's at least the way marriage should work. And that doesn't mean you compromise who you are as a person individually. It just means you're living for a greater cause at this point the nature of the union. And although they certainly could live as disconnected individuals from one another, that's guaranteed to lend you a, a visit with a counselor at some point if you want to redeem your marriage, right? It's incredibly unhealthy for two individuals committed to a marriage to live solely for themselves. It is like the antithesis of marriage. The spiritual health of each individual is deeply connected to the health of the union. That's what makes marriage, marriage. And it's an image of the church. The Bible also describes the church as a family. This is what we're talking about here. That's what Paul is saying in Ephesians when he says we are members of the same household of which the foundation is Christ. And much like marriage, think about families. A family is made up of individual members. They each have different identities, different roles, different strengths, different weaknesses. They are unique and distinct in their own way. That's the nature of the church. Every one of you has a unique story, a unique history. You've got a thumbprint in the world that nobody else has. And God loves that diversity. However, much like your family, at least in the healthy family, a family is united under the larger banner of the family name. They are committed to being a part of something much greater than themselves. Part of their identity is that they are part of a larger family. That's the same, same idea with the church. We are unique individuals, diverse in every way, but we are sort of united under a new last name. The name is Christ. And so these metaphors show us that God's desire for the church, his desire, is that we become a unified family in Jesus' name. But that is not always the case. It is the case a lot of times, but on our worst days or even in some of the poorest expressions of Christianity, we've seen a drift here. And I want to share with you, I have sort of a long analogy I want to share with you. This is, I say this is the beginning of the end, but we still got some time from the front of the room. It's not that close to the end, so hold on with me. This is an idea that I have talked about about six years ago here. And I believe it's one of the greatest challenges to this kind of household love. Over the past 30 years, it's, it's been seen all through the church, 
and it is known as the hom homogeneous unit principle. And this part of my message, I'll explain this in a moment, so hold on. This part of my message is fresh in my mind because about a month and a half ago, I had a, a very recent conversation with Adam Smith, who is one of our uh, leadership and directional team advisors. And we were talking about this before our monthly meeting. We were talking about this very idea. And this principle was a highly popular church growth method used to connect with people that has slowly but surely garnered increasing skepticism from church pastors, leaders, and academics. But it's got about three decades or so of really creating a, uh, it's, there's some DNA in the modern church because of this. And while there are some churches that still employ it, it's fair to say that in our ministry partnerships, our denomination and our church planning networks, it's largely fallen out of favor, meaning we've all sort of recognized this was not a great thing to do. None of us have been engaged in it, and we certainly don't want to uh, perpetuate a culture in our local churches that continues to bring this about. The effect of this philosophy, even though folks have moved away from it, the effects of this philosophy still lingers everywhere in the modern church. And to be fair, the principle took its cue from observing the larger natural rhythms of how very diverse peoples in our world choose to naturally live amongst each other. So this wasn't made up by sort of church practitioners. It was sort of observed. It's like a sociology, basically. It was observed in the rhythms of the way people function. And as the name implies, it basically says, and this is as true a statement as you'll get this morning, most people tend to find great comfort in being around people who are very similar to themselves. And if given their own choices, they will naturally strive to live this way whenever given the chance. Because for the most part, most people, whether they know it or not, want to be comfortable above all else. And comfort oftentimes is at odds with the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm not saying they can't coexist, but I'm saying the nature of following Jesus often causes us to be in very uncomfortable positions. I have said each week, the nature of the gospel is disadvantaging self for the benefit of others. That's what the cross shows us. Jesus takes the cross for us, complete disadvantage, the king crucified for the benefit of a group of people, those who would follow him. And so this is not a church thing. This is a people thing. And the natural reality of this, if you need an example, this can be seen in the immigration movements of the 19th century in New York City. I'll just use my family's backdrop to prove it. Very diverse Western European peoples, like the Irish and Italians. There's a little bit of that in my family on both sides. They immigrated to the United States. And rather than quickly assimilating into the American culture at large, they clustered in particular areas of the city and created communities like Little Italy. And Little, Little Italy is uh, very touristy today, but like 80 years ago, it literally was a subsection of Italy. It was an Italian subculture in the larger American culture. And this is still happening today. If you look at America, this dynamic is very prevalent. Over the last century, the U.S. has seen a larger influx of people from Asia, creating areas like, I'll go back to New York City, like Chinatown. You can also see this in California. These are largely Chinese subcultures in the larger American culture. This trend is very common, and it can be seen in just about every state in the U.S. I think the clearest example we have of this today is Dearborn, Michigan, which has an incredibly large Arab-American population. I drove through there years ago. I was speaking up there after Hurricane Katrina to raise support for our church, and we drove through Dearborn, and it was literally like being in another country. Subcultures sort of root themselves in and develop, much like the other ones I've mentioned. And so here's what some church practitioners said. They said, hey, the homogenous unit principle says since people already do this naturally, why fight it? Like churches should just embrace this and try to reach people who are always culturally similar to themselves. So to be fair here, and I want to be fair, understanding why people are more comfortable in familiar settings like this, it makes sense and it's even logical. Same language, same food preferences. There is sort of a, 
a, a, a familiarity that develops from that. And in the church, this can be logical to a certain point. However, here's where we deviate the path here. Having a common affinity, whatever it is, okay, keep in mind, not innately a bad thing. However, solely building the church like this is deeply problematic. And it is a great example of where the church at times, I really believe, has been too influenced by the culture it sits in. And here's the reason knowing this seriously matters. This principle, the homogenous unit principle, created an unintended consequence of the church. And if you've never heard the name of this, I guarantee you, you're going to have an example of where you've seen it. Because it created generations of Christians from every tribe and every tongue, right? The Bible says every tribe and every tongue. We're going to be singing to Christ one day in heaven. But what it did is it took all these tribes and tongues and it caused them to believe something different, uh, something somewhat problematic. It caused them to believe that the deepest relationships they could have in life were built on their affinities, not the shed blood of Jesus. And that's a problem. So as a result, to varying degrees, people were taught the best way to make a disciple was to only pursue relationships with the people who were most like them. There's nothing wrong with that. But that's such an incomplete paradigm when it comes to discipling according to what the Scripture teaches us, that we should impartially look at all peoples, even ones very, 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 very far from God, or our own comforts, and love them and care for them. Over time, this began to fragment God's desire for the unified family we're talking about here in the church, and it began to sort of subculture us. Based on things like, here's where this is going to probably make a lot of sense now. In churches, we see groups of people that are sort of you know, put together by their geography, uh, by age, particular life seasons, stuff like singles, married, married with kids, married without kids, married with kids who moved out, married with kids who should move out, but they haven't moved out. You know, they, whatever, whatever we could do, if we could create a new affinity we, and we have a building, we don't. Part of the reason we don't do this is because we can't. They just added room 301 and threw that subculture of people together. Men, women, college students, young professionals, the retired, the list goes on. There's no limit to this or denying its reality. Case in point, it's very likely if you have a church background, you have been a part of a church that had a slew of what we now call affinity ministries. Now hear me, again, I want to be so clear here. There is nothing inherently wrong with this. Don't hear me throwing this, this under the bus. In fact, we have a, a small handful, but nonetheless a handful of those spaces here. They can be very meaningful if that affinity group is connected to the larger household idea that Jesus prays for in John and Paul speaks about us having in Ephesians. However, we do have a problem when we solely see our identity like this in God's household because it actually robs us of one of the greatest benefits of being a member of God's household. It compartmentalizes people who would greatly benefit from being around each other because they are different from each other and they are in different seasons and spaces of life, different life experience, speaking into each other as opposed to be, being sort of like sectioned off. And so over the years, I've found that this often leads people to feel like when they're in a church, that they're in a church, but they're not connected to it. In large part, because they have a very particular expectation for what they believe Christian relationships are supposed to look like. And when we don't find that common homogenous idea, when it doesn't work out the way we thought it would, it translates into this common feeling. And it almost always expresses itself in this emotional statement. I feel like I don't belong. So, for example, it's very common to talk to people at churches who feel like they're not connected. And I also want to be fair here. Sometimes that could be they literally are in a place in a church that isn't connecting with people. There are real walls that have been built up, keeping people from experiencing this household idea that Paul's talking about. That happens and it is painful. That's not what we're addressing today. That's for another day. What we're talking about is what I'm about to say. 
However, it's just as common to talk to people who feel like they're not connected because they haven't connected with people or the people they thought they would connect with, which is almost always a person very similar to who they are. This is a classic example of what happens when, when our individual identities trump our corporate identity in Jesus Christ. We say our name and then put an affinity at the end of it as our last name, as opposed to the name of Christ, which binds all people together. In the modern church, this is best seen in the way people of particular life seasons tend to only cluster with people in the same life seasons. And they often do this at the expense of being around others in a different life space. So for example, it's fair to say, think about this, here's where, here's where this becomes a problem with discipling. It's fair to say it would benefit single people who want to be married to spend some time with married people, right? And the longtime married folks to invest in newlyweds. Each one of them are moving in a similar direction, but they're at very different spaces in life, and they can all benefit each other by speaking into each other. It's deeply beneficial to have young professionals spend time with those who are trying to figure out what profession they want to serve in. And for those who have worked their whole life, invested in careers or made a difference in their respective discipline, whatever it is, how invaluable is it to have somebody there speak to somebody at the beginning or the mid-stages of their career? There's a, a wealth of Christian maturity in that that can be passed on, as well as there's a wealth of learning that can come from those who are maybe at different, or we might even say humbly, seasons behind us in life. This is probably very true when it comes to our marriages. Listen, when I first got married, my wife will validate all of this, unfortunately, but when I first got married, I, had, I didn't have the best of inputs in my life. In fact, I remember having lots of conversations with all my single friends at coffee tables about the married life. And no offense, I know a lot of you students are single, but let me tell you, on a scale from 1 to 10, it's like a 65 to take advice from only single people about being married because there's a, there's a missing gap there at some point, right? So they would tell me all these things to say and do, and I would go home, and it was just bad. It was not, it was not great, right? I mean, I'd go home with like, well, John said, like, I should be able to go out whenever I want. And, like, and Corinne would be like, yeah, right, whatever, all right, you know. Not, not happen. Go out. Doors locked. Couch is waiting for you, right? Okay. Nothing wrong with learning there, but the point is, is man, it's, it's a bit of a blind spot, right? So you want to have those people in your life, but you also want to have people in your life sort of cross-pollinating in areas they've already been in. So you have healthy examples of what a marriage should look like. And Corinne will be honest with you about this. The first five years of our marriage, we've been married like close to 17 years now, they were very difficult. And I look back at that, and I think a large part of it is because we did not have people speaking into us, and that's not good. And we sort of made it a battle cry of restoration to, to never perpetuate that. We want this to be a place where, where people value this and, and really value each other in differing spaces of life. This is the essence of discipleship, right? It's a diverse group of people, all with differing levels of Christian maturity and life stories, joined together in Jesus, and we're speaking into each other's lives and building each other up in Christ. That is literally what the Bible teaches us. But the principle we're sort of deconstructing here right now, it devalued that. It's not a bad principle. It's just incomplete. Let me leave it there. And if you've ever wondered why our community groups at Restoration are pretty much multi-everything and not homogenous, this, this is why we have fought hard to build that banner here. And it's truly one of the things I most thank God for in our body. It, it gives me great joy to see like 20-year-olds having lunch with senior citizens and vice versa. And everything in the middle of those two things happening, that is a beautiful thing. It is an evidence in small part, but nonetheless a significant one, of what John, uh, Jesus is praying for and us experiencing some of that here. This is increasingly important, increasingly important, this idea, when it comes to us trying to work through a series like the one I'm teaching on, entitled We Believe, because these rich theologies we're talking about are not meant to be processed in a relational vacuum. 
I want you to think about this. Understanding them, applying them, wrestling with them, being confused by them, being changed by them, being deeply challenged by them, disagreeing with them. It's all the more powerful when we are processing them with other men and women from various life stages and experiences because it is likely those people have been places you, you've not with some of these truths and you've been places in life that some of those people speaking into your life have, have yet to be, meaning you, you make a contribution in them and them in you. And so as we wrap up, and this is truly the end, I want to leave you with a practical step here. I want to sort of give you a, a roadmap, if you will, for how to implement a household rhythm in your life, how to build family in your own life under the umbrella of our church. For those of you that, that live here and are from here, this matters for our future. For those of you that will shape ministries on campuses in the years and months to come, I pray you'll, you'll hear this. It is critical, this rhythm. It's one that I strive for in my own life. So here when I say this, we're in the same faith boat here. I'm not telling you to do this. I'm saying this is something I do, and it's something we should do. The best way to apply this is to make it a point. Three things. It'll be behind me. Take a picture of it. Write it down. Email us if you want the slide. Three things to do. The first is make it a point to always have a godly person who is ahead of you in life. What I simply mean by this is wherever you are in life, there is somebody ahead of you. And when you can find a person who's mature beyond your years but is humble and gracious— and wants to serve God, you should try to spend time with that person. You should seek that relationship out. Don't wait for it to come to you. Whatever your season of life is right now, pray about somebody ahead of you that you can sit under, that can invest in you, that can speak to you. Right now, I have a, a retired, just about 80-year-old pastor who lives in Tennessee, who I talk to once a week with, on, we, we Skype. And it's invaluable to have that wealth of wisdom and support. And that exists for all of us. So pray about having somebody in your life, a godly person ahead of you, that can sort of light the way in the places you want to go. Secondly, I would say, it is invaluable, important to have a person who is at a similar stage of life. So if you're, if you're a young married or whatever you are, you want to have other people like that in your life. Not only those people, but somebody like that, because there's going to be a greater level of empathy there, meaning you're going to be in a common struggle, and you can learn on a peer-to-peer basis. You need places to vent. You need places to be spoken into, and maybe even times to be corrected. So have people in your life that are on a peer level with you. And lastly, I would say, have a person who is behind you in their stage of life at all times. And this is probably going to be the hardest one. I think it's very easy for those of us that value being discipled, being in relationships with people who care about us, it is much easier to receive that than it is to give it. So what I want to say is, whatever it is that you value about being poured into, it's critical that you realize the kingdom of God, the future of it, is built on you pouring into other people in the same way. And so no matter what your season of life is, find somebody behind you. Find somebody that you can invest in, that you can be an encouragement to, that you can support and care for, that you can, you can like their path. And this is important to do because meaningfully being connected to God's people like this in your life is going to cause you you're going to avoid walking the road of, of judgment and arrogance. And I want to explain what I mean by this. When these rhythms are present in your life, when you see yourself as a part of a household, it is more likely that humility and grace will define your steps as opposed to the common idea of, of arrogance and judgment. And over the years, I've also seen this. The further disconnected a person is from learning and living God's truth with other people in their lives, the more likely they are to get proud about where they believe they are with Jesus and judgmental about where they believe others are not with Jesus. I want to repeat that, because I know I'm a fast-talking Yankee. I want to say it again. 
the further disconnected a person, the further disconnected you and I are from learning and living God's truth out with other people in our lives, the more likely we are to get proud about where we believe we are with Jesus and judgmental about where we think others are with Jesus. Meaning, we'll look at them and just be reminded of where they're not. Now, this is because it's super easy to be frustrated with people whom you view from a distance in life. Because at the end of the day, that's just a religious statistic. That's all that that is. When you can look at a person and be disengaged from their lives, they're a stat. They're a, they did this or they didn't do this. But when you're in the same life trench with that person, you cannot avoid the truth that God has for you and he has for others to have for us. You will desire to help them become whom God wants them to be. You can't, you can't view a person as a statistic if you're having lunch with them or if you're caring for them or they're a shoulder that you cry on or vice versa. The arrogance usually develops because there's no one in our lives who is reminding us and supporting us and gently reminding us of the ways we need to grow in Jesus. And that's why I say each one of those categories, humility mandates that we have them because we always have room to grow in Jesus. That's the nature of being sanctified. We're always growing in him until the day comes where we're with him in heaven and growth is no more because sin is gone, permanently gone. And we are now perfect in him. But until that day, we can grow. And so I want to encourage you to think about this. Don't disconnect yourself from the plight of your brothers and sisters in Jesus. Because if you do that, you'll likely get to the place where you can't empathize and support them in that plight. And when that happens, you will forget you're on the same faith journey and you will damage the household of God. That's what happens. So this is why there's a clear biblical precedent to make the church a place where all people can belong to Jesus and each other. Don't hear me wrong here. The foundation of our relationship is in Jesus. He redeems our hearts but then he thrusts us into these communities called churches so we can belong to each other. And furthermore, if we don't make it a priority to unconditionally belong to each other as members of God's household in here, we're never going to be able to carry out the work of extending that benefit to the rest of the unbelieving world. And we will have a sermon called We Believe in Mission. We'll get to that down the road. But we do believe that everything we talk about in here is meant to be showed and displayed to the world out there because an environment of belonging starts with the way the family of God sees each other. So if we love and care for each other, what Jesus says it is very likely that that will spill over into our world, into our workplaces, our schools, our homes. Wherever we're going, we carry the light of Christ with us. And it is through his church, it's through our words and our deeds, that God says he's going to make the reality of his presence known to the world. So this morning, let's join together and be that. As we move into this response time, have an honest conversation with God. Ask him where you are or are not with this. And know there is no judgment from him. There is no ideal that he doesn't want you to prescribe towards or to migrate towards. God has an ideal. We've discussed it. But he's also very real with us in the sense that he understands this is a process he works through us in. So get connected to God deeply. Get connected to somebody deeply and move towards realism in your love for other people. Shed the shackles of idealism. Ask yourself, what is Jesus saying to you about this? And what is it that you will do about it when you leave this place this morning? Pray with me.